Schools, I think, are the, the linchpin, the building block for everything in society. Adam, you're known as one of Australia's foremost researchers in Indigenous literature and culture. Welcome back to part two of our Illumin conversation. I'd like to start with um, you explaining a little bit about the nine books that you've written on Indigenous Australian literature and culture. Look, and, and especially in this section, and I know that you would also in the previous one, I just wanted to just acknowledge country in this regard because it actually has been the foundation for everything. And I give an example just of Gumbanga country, known as Coffs Harbour in the English language. One of the elders there in my most recent job before Victoria was so influential in changing the way that we see higher education. And during COVID, she did yarning circles online with women all over the world. And her work expanded dramatically. So what I'm saying is when you're going to do books, it's about the people with whom you work and the respect that you have for them. And it's all about often being very quiet and listening. So I'll just tell you how the first one eventuated. And it began with the incredible person, Kath Walker, otherwise known as Ujuru Nunakal. Okay, so just at a kind of young age of 20, I went to Minjeraba, Nostradbuk Island, and met her at kind of at the height of her powers. And she drew me outside at this, was actually at the, at the pub, and we had a discussion outside, and she said, so you're here from Canada, What's, what are you trying to achieve? And I said, look, I'm not sure exactly, but I think there's a very interesting story to be told about race relations and literature in this country. And she said, here's what you need to do. Interview carefully, quietly and respectfully every Aboriginal writer there is in Australia. And she said, there are probably scores of them and I'll help you. Second, make sure at least one chapter is about me and my work because <laughs> I've had a bit to do with it. And thirdly, don't listen to everything that other people say when they tell you not to do this work. It's essential. So the point of that is it only began because I was invited and had a mentor. You could never do it otherwise in that way. And I wouldn't say it was perfect or flawless or anything of that sort, but it was a, a response to that discussion initially. And I pay tribute to Ujuru and her memory. It was incredibly profound. You are a very fortunate young man at 20 to have met such a woman. Yeah. So if we go back before that, what was it about Indigenous literature that attracted you in the first place? And how was that area of study influenced? How has it influenced, rather, your professional life? Huge influence, profound all-encompassing in a way, but also how to be attracted to something. I think even as a high school student in Ottawa, I was aware of the fact that the national capital brought people together for governmental reasons, but other reasons. And there was a very odd thing that happened in the Canadian government at that time. There was a department called the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development. That was what it was called. Mm. Now, these days, you'd say, how could those two be yoked together under one heading? One sounds like mining, you know, oil and gas and development, the other Indian affairs, not even First Nations or any other word. And people felt it. So I actually went to that department doing an essay in high school and just sat down and said, I'm actually wondering how you feel about being in this area. Do you mind speaking to me? You don't have to. But they said, we'd be delighted to. So I kind of got the thought that even as a young student, you could, by listening and writing, change attitudes to some extent, even if it was just a small contribution. But the welcome that I had was echoed when I came to Australia and went to the Aboriginal Arts Board of the Australia Council way back in the early 80s and did the same thing. They just said, you just sit down on the floor and watch what we do today and we'll call on you when we're ready. So very often what you need to do is not say 
anything and ask only when you're asked. It was a very profound lesson for us. We always try to fill the air with commentary. Sorry, I know I'm saying this in a podcast, <laughs> but the truth is you don't want to have lots of silences in a no, podcast. No. But in race relations, it's essential. Yeah. So that's where it began. I think what you've certainly explained to us there is you have grown up and worked both in Canada and in Australia. Are there things that you think Australia and Canada can learn from each other as they work to deepen reconciliation with their First Nations people? Undoubtedly. And look, there's so much. I mean, I wouldn't say that one is, quote, better than the other. They all have huge journeys to travel. They both have huge journeys to travel. All the post-colonial countries, in fact, you couldn't really say it's post-colonial. It's still in the final end of whatever empire we had. But, for example, at least in Canada, there's been big experiments in self-governing Indigenous territories, Nunavut, for example. There's talk, as you know, in The Voice, about the possibility of more access with a body to Parliament here. But if you look back at the 1920s, the person who's the male figure on the $50 note, David Unipon, was advocating for an independent Aboriginal state in the Northern Territory in 1923 and wrote about it. This is not a new idea. It's an idea whose time might have come. It may be for all of us to decide, but it's not a new one. So the point of that is, sometimes ideas have to wait a long time to see the light of day. But when they do, that's the time to grab them. These are always important conversations to have, but 2023 is certainly going to be a, a potentially a pinnacle year. And we want our students to be very involved in that debate and discussion and to have their views. As you know, Adam, Girls Grammar is developing and implementing our own reconciliation action plan at this time. What's your experience of RAPS and what do you think is required to make it something that's meaningful, something that's authentic? Mm. And most importantly, that it doesn't just engage, but also hopefully unifies and engenders a certain respect that leads to greater equity. Okay. Look, if you start with that word, it's so crucial, equity, but equity of intent is not the same as equity of outcome. And so the difficulty with reconciliation action plans, they get both the best and sometimes the most challenging of documents because they often are very full of aspiration, but they have to be measured in terms of outcomes, trackable, traceable, real uplifting outcomes. So I think the only thing I'd suggest is when I've seen them work best, they have those kinds of elements which can be seen and evaluated specifically. It can't just be about general feelings of togetherness and goodwill. As important as that is, it's got to be measurable, first point. Second one is... There's a whole dimension of this, which is action plan. And so what's beyond reconciliation? Is it actually an idea that we can then take the the polity further? And it might be the, the case that this opens up doors for students to study in different ways, to study on country, in country, to actually see the First Nations ownership of Maripada in a new light, to see how astronomy works. Have a look at the most recent work on Indigenous astronomy. It's so powerful. So I just say essential to have, but they're not self-sufficient and they're a starting point. And if we look at your particular interest in the area of literature, how do you think a better understanding of Indigenous culture through literature as one form of learning can help in that reconciliation? Look, I'm just, as we're an invited guest into the literary arena here, but I'm so glad that I was invited. And what I've been been discovering, you know, this is now in three decades of work, is that the talent which exists and has always existed with First Nations people is profound and prodigious. It just wasn't recognized. 
So, you know, if you look back at, quote, literature, even in the 18th century and 19th century, there were examples of what you might describe as, you know, markings on the body, markings on caves, markings in world. They're forms of writing, in a sense, that are incredibly powerful still today, and people never cottoned onto the fact that it was there. So when we're talking about writing in the so-called, shall we say, the non-Indigenous world, that of publication, you know, online or on paper, it's actually linked to oral cultures in a very deep way. Performance, music, drama is all linked to lyric as well. So storytelling is the common feature. So when I go back to Ujuru, as we said earlier, I said to her, what do you, how do you describe yourself when you're asked at you know, the customs border what your occupation is? She said, storyteller. Mm. Now, was that an occupation? Incredibly so. Was it powerful? Absolutely. Do most people in this country think of it that way? Not yet. That's the difference. In Adam's wise words, there is some important guidance for us, I think, as we develop our own reconciliation action plan at Girls' Grammar. And so now I'm going to talk to three Year 12 students. We'd like to hear some of their thoughts about reconciliation. Liza, Tunghee and Katie are members of Urala, which of course is our student service group that has been working over a number of years now to effect change in relation to the complex issues faced by First Nations peoples in Australia. Liza, Tunghi and Katie, welcome to Illumin. Thank, Thank you. you. Now I'm assuming that you all joined the Urala Club because you're interested in the rights of our First Nations people and you're looking perhaps to make a positive contribution towards reconciliation. So can you tell me, was there an experience or a person that inspired your interest or is this just something, an area that you've always been interested in, Katie? So I had Miss Hills as a grade nine house group teacher and so she's our coordinator for Urala and she definitely advocated for people in our house group to come and join, maybe come to one, see if you enjoyed it. So I went to one and I, I really enjoyed it. I loved all the people, I loved everyone sharing their ideas and that kind of thing. What was your experience, Tunghi? I think it's something that I've always been quite interested in, just um, learning about Indigenous issues and, you know, reading about stuff in the news and I think I've just kind of always been interested in it, even before I started grammar. And what about you, Liza? Before I joined, I wasn't really aware of a lot of First Nations issues and its prominence in society, but I had um, this really constructive conversation with Simran Makrani, a previous student at grammar, and she invited me to come and learn more and meet new people, and it was just a really great experience for me personally. Yeah. And that's probably true of everyone. They come to explore issues more deeply, perhaps because of a teacher, as you said, or an older student, or it's something that you've read and wanted to learn more about. Katie and Liza, you are our captains of the Urala Club, and you champion a lot of awareness about Indigenous issues. Within our school, you're involved in a lot of fundraising activities. But can you explain how your involvement in Urala so far has led to the development of our Reconciliation Action Plan, or, or RAP? So we often attend the RAP planning meetings as students just to give our ideas on maybe like curriculum ideas for introducing things. We also organise a lot of events, so for Close the Gap Day, NADOC Week, Reconciliation Week, we organise forums and go around with petitions maybe for Close the Gap. And what's your involvement look like, Liza? Extending on that, in sort of a prequel context, before it became a really big focus, before we had a wrap, 
it was about getting awareness out there and having people acknowledge what Australia is currently standing with and how our school community is standing with reconciliation, First Nations issues. So I think one thing that was really amazing about Urala was that the conversations we had in the classroom didn't just stay there. There were things that extended and it looked like a lot of things. It just looked like casual conversations with friends. But another big example was the petition when we were in grade nine about raising the flag, which got over 500 student signatures. And it was about those kind of actions that we took as students to make reconciliation a focus or at least try to push the school in a good direction for it, which I was really happy with. Absolutely. And that has led to um, the creation of the Reconciliation Action Plan. Is there anything within it that you're particularly excited about, Liza? Or was there anything that you can look at and think, well, I really had a big impact on the development of that? Yeah, I really liked in particular the curriculum changes and how we were looking in particularly a good example was history where it would have been year nine we had this unit it was called like the foundation of a nation and about the foundation of Australia and it was like optional whether you wanted to learn about First Nations people's experiences in that but now it's become a mandatory unit and I know in English now we look at more First Nations based texts etc and it's more just making the narrative broader and it's about looking at the multiple perspectives that make our Australian identity and it's about listening to those different voices so that to me was really a really amazing thing to see. And do you think you were influential in that part or is that just the part that you're most excited about? I know that for a very long time in Urala we were having those kind of conversations about where could the classroom go in terms of involving more First Nations voices or First Nations history So I think, especially with Ms Hill's involvement in the humanities department, those kind of conversations were really constructive and they did go places, which was really cool to see. That's great. What about you, Katie? Is there something that excites you particularly in the plan? I genuinely have to agree with Liza on the introductions into the classroom. I know we won't reap the benefits of that because we're grade 12 now, but definitely seeing introductions earlier into the classroom, so younger grades and in subjects that aren't optional, So everyone gets the kind of broader education, but probably also just having more First Nations people's voices in the classroom. So maybe um, inviting uh, community members into the school for forums. And why do you think that's important? To have their own personal experience of maybe throughout their lives, what they have gone through or maybe um, the community's response to them or maybe not just the view of the first fleet like colonization but more modern experiences yeah so it's a very personal and powerful and potentially transformative voice that you're hearing rather than perhaps reading it in the abstract yeah Tunghi, I'm going to ask you now, yeah. when I was speaking with Professor Shoemaker, he mentioned, well, he stressed pretty strongly that what's a really important part of developing and implementing a RAP is to make sure that the plan goes beyond just feelings of aspiration and good intentions and goodwill, he said, that the plan needs to be able to be seen and it needs to be measured. Do you think the school plan, as we've currently created it, goes far enough to meet that advice or do you think this is just the beginning and that there's much more work to be done? So I think the school um, reconciliation action plan does kind of meet the beginning steps 
towards reconciliation. But I think that alongside the Reconciliation Action Plan, we should also be having like active involvement and more discussion surrounding issues like these. Like, for example, we already have Urella Club, which is really great, but I would like to see um, more of this discussion like during lunchtime with like a group of friends or more casually implemented into our everyday lives. And how do you feel about that, Liza? Do you think, do you know what Professor Shoemaker's talking about when he said it can't be just talking about good intentions and that there have to be things that you can actually see and measure? I think one thing that the RAP works very well in doing is making these concepts and the issues that we want to address really tangible. These actions are broken down into very specific, direct things that we can do and it specifies who can do them, how they can be implemented and what that action entails. And I think it's so imperative that it's broken down that way because it's one thing to say like, yes, we want to add Indigenous voices to the classroom, but then it's another to be like, how are we going to do that? Are we going to involve more First Nations voices in literature, in English? Or are we going to start looking at both sides of the foundation of Australia in terms of that kind of um, curriculum development? So you think the, the plan's yeah. actually helping us yeah. quantify what needs to yeah. be done and also to look back and say, yes, we've done it and we've achieved it. Yeah, and I think one thing with the RAP as well is that it's not, like, no checklist is ever just going to solve reconciliation in one go. And the thing about the RAP that is so, that I think will be very effective is that it is very um, ever-growing. It's not set in stone. It's something that will develop as our contemporary needs change. So once we start getting through things like raising the flag or having more um, Indigenous voices in terms of presentations, then we can work with those foundations to create further actions and extend that wrap beyond what it is just now. Okay, so now at the moment, 2023 is going to be a particularly significant and important year. I'm going to ask you now to, I, I guess, consider Australia's efforts so far. So if we think of this being a very important reflective year for Australia, what do you think we could do better compared to other nations? I think Australia so far, we have taken some steps towards reconciliation, but I think it is kind of a slow progress that we're making. I mean, just in 2008 was the um, Stolen Generations apology, and that was not that long ago. So I think it's important for us to think about what actions we can actually do and how to implement them in a timely manner. Going off what Tungi said, there is, we do have a very solid history of not progressing at a rate at which we think is effective enough. And we were discussing this with Close the Gap Day in the sense that we have not taken as many steps as, as, as a government they were aiming to take. So I think the voice to parliament is a really great first step. But I think in saying that, I know there's a lot of indigenous perspectives that it's not quite enough just yet in terms of a treaty with our First Nations people, Australia's still yet to get one of those and have one sorted in comparison to other nations such as the USA. So I think it's about really reflecting and really um, listening to those different voices because one thing that we find a lot with the government is that they're trying to provide all of these solutions for First Nations people without considering First Nations voices. So I think it's about exposing themselves to different perspectives and being prepared to hear that their ideas thus far aren't really working in a way that First Nations communities might like. And what about you, Katie? I definitely think the voice is of the voice to Parliament is a step in the right direction, but like Liza said, one voice probably 
won't be enough for the entirety of the Indigenous population of Australia. There are so many different communities. So I think maybe that conversation starting at a more local form of government, so just having voices from the communities like in the surrounding areas. So, you know, for us, the terrible people, definitely having, um, seeing what their needs are because the, the federal voice might be a bit too broad for everyone in Australia. Yeah, so it's a multifaceted approach that you're talking about. You're talking about some of the things that have been achieved, the things that might be achievable, but also looking uh, to the longer term to bring about bigger and greater change. I'm going to end with a question that's about essentially how you as young women feel about the future. Do you feel hopeful that we might have some progress and what's the promise of 2023, Katie? I definitely feel hopeful, especially within the school. There's a lot happening at the moment, so I'm very excited about that. Outside of school, it's a little bit less optimum. A lot is not happening within the government. Even the voice to parliament is still undecided. So, Tungi, what are you feeling hopeful about? What's the promise of 2023, Tungi? I'm definitely hopeful towards the future, and especially this year. I think it's really important to maintain that hope and use it to propel your actions and kind of back up everything that you do. And I think it's just important to pass it on to other people. And Liza. I think as a nation, one thing that I've quite respected is that we're now taking quite a realistic and tangible approach towards reconciliation. We're starting to see the government be prepared to start backing up those promises they're making and really consider First Nations voices, which is something that I think will be leading Australia in a great direction. And I think one thing that's really amazing is that we are recognising that there are faults. We're not glorifying what previous governments have done. We're looking at it from a perspective that considers the pros and cons of each action that we're taking. And I think that is a good step in the right direction. Liza Tunghi and Katie, thank you for sharing your intelligent, very wise and very, I think, considered views on this important topic. Thank you for joining us on Illumin. And as we head into 2032, Australia will be looking at its identity and, mm. and, and hoping to have made great strides in all areas, whether it's reconciliation or climate action, etc. Yeah. Literature and storytelling is going to be an important and powerful element of that. I know for the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, you were part of a, uh, well, you instigated an important publication. Can you tell us a little about that and how you would see a potential updated model in 2032? How might it be the same and and how might it be different? Oh, look, it's it's a great question. I believe that the arts are powerful. I do also think social sciences are too, but in a slightly different way. And therefore, we sometimes underestimate the power of arts to travel and change ideas. So to answer it specifically, when you think of First Nations art and achievement, It is one of the most important representations of this country in every overseas mission and embassy that we have. And it also is one of the main reasons why a lot of people visit Australia when they come. They don't want to just see Sydney Harbour and the Opera House. They want to see what they say is First Nations inspiration. But to answer the question specifically, in 2000 and before, it was actually in about 1998, we had the view of, is it possible, could it be possible to have a gift, a gift given to those who come to the Sydney Olympics, which reflected the best of Australian literature, photography in one volume. And many of the photographers and writers in this book could be First Nations. 
That's exactly what happened. It wasn't agreed to immediately, but the amazing Andrea Stretton, who was the, uh, she was actually the artistic director of that first sea change Olympic Arts Festival, got the idea completely. And together we managed to, we'll say, we'll t take it through the harbor, take it to the harbor to the birth. And the birth was 40,000 copies printed by Australian Paper, a company at the time, given away for free to every school every school library in the state of New South Wales and beyond, and many international visitors to say, we're proud of the arts, we're proud of what they say about this nation, and it's just a mu as much a part of Olympism as anything else. Something like that in 2032, can you imagine Brisbane, city of words, watch that space? I think you've just got us a slogan there, Adam. That's fantastic. <laughs> As we look ahead, so it's always exciting to look ahead and we know certainly we're expecting so many of our students to be important participants in the Olympics, not necessarily just as uh, Olympians and athletes, but also the people constructing the stadiums and yeah. overseeing the arts festivals that support it and all of the exciting elements of a global event. But if we bring our focus back those going on to study now or sometime in the future, what do you hope they get out of learning? You're energised, you've spent your entire life in institutions of learning or just educating yourself. <laughs> what do you hope they'll get out of it? What's exciting? Why is it important to be an educated person and to continue to learn and grow throughout your life? I think mentoring through education is the most powerful force we can imagine. I had one of the best professors ever in my first year at Queen's, Norman H. McKenzie. And on the very first day, he, there were 55 of us in the class, he memorized everyone and where they were and where they were sitting. When they came the next day, even if they changed seats, he knew them. He invited us all to go on a boat on Lake Ontario with a medieval minstrel talking mm -hmm. about poetry. And so we could get to know each other. So this is not an individual question. It's to do with the group dynamic. There is probably no profession I can imagine where the team, the group, the collaborative, the ensemble isn't just as important, if not more so, than the individual. That, to me, is the key of education, learning that, ultimately, humility is everything. Professor Adam Shoemaker, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. All of your insight and intellect has been energising, quite frankly, but also, as Ujuru Nunakal said, carefully, quietly and respectfully addressing some really important issues for us to explore. Thank you for joining Wonderful. me. Wonderful. Thanks again. You have been listening to Illumin, a podcast by Brisbane Girls Grammar School. Music for this podcast was written and performed by former Year 12 student Alicia Seng. To ensure you never miss an episode of Illumin, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And to learn more about the school, visit the website at www.bggs.qld.edu.au.